0: Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as Mark Lemon official on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I speak with the Right Honourable Stuart Lawrence. Stuart speaks with me about the murder of his brother, Stephen, and how he is now helping young people to achieve their full potential. You can find Stuart on Instagram and Twitter as Stuart Lawrence. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, today I'm interviewing a very special person, someone that I have wanted to get on the podcast for quite a while now and I'm extremely privileged to have the right honourable Stuart Lawrence on the podcast. How are you?
1: Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Just trying to find the new type of normal at the moment with uh, coming out of Covid and, and all the rest of it. So yeah.
0: For the listeners and those that might not know who you are, would you be able to just uh, give them a brief introduction please?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, Stuart Lawrence, um, I'm the younger brother Stephen Lawrence. I've been on a mad sort of life journey to date. I've um, done as weird as wonderful things as worked in the home office, worked in Belmarsh Prison. Uh, I've been a school teacher. That's probably the longest thing I've ever done. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just on a, on a sort of new chapter of my life now where I'm trying to sort of ensure that change happens and i have a new sort of mantra in my life where i say to people this this fight is my fight this isn't my son's fight you know this this ends with me in this generation and i'm I'm really trying to encourage fellow adults uh to try and ensure that when our kids become our age they don't have to go through the same rubbish that we're going through now so
0: are you happy to share with our listeners about your own experience with grief, please?
1: Yeah, so this is this is quite a big thing for me, and I would definitely say that it's only, it's only something that I've really <laughs> sort of got my head around later on in life. And I, I would say also that when, when Stephen Fast first passed away, I thought that I was dealing with things in quite an adult responsible sort of way. And on reflection now, you know, I've I've, I've lost, I'd say to people like five or six years of my life that I can't remember from 16 to about 20, 22, 23. I just can't, there's just certain things I can't put my finger on. Uh, I was really, I would work quite compartmentized to things. So I would, I went to college for a year, I'd left there and I wouldn't have any contact with people that I had just met for that year. I went to another college for two years and I I just kept on doing the same thing. I'd change my phone number and I'd have a really small close-knit of friends. And yeah, I I just realized how I thought I was dealing with things. But it's not until I'd say I probably had my own son and, and I had some time to reflect on my own self that I realized that I just hadn't dealt with things in the way that you can deal with things to allow yourself to grow and be the best person you can be, really.
0: Yeah, grief can hit you like that as well, can't it? I mean, I remember personally as well. And it's funny you talk about the whole struggling to remember uh, the years after, you know, our loved ones have died and, and that sort of how fuzzy it is. And, I mean, I know I was 12, but even still, when I try and think back to sort of secondary school and things like that, it is quite fuzzy, isn't it?
1: No, and I think that that's part of your coping mechanism, as well as a human being. Like, you, you I'm quite able to to and put things in parts of my mind and not think about things, and you know, not not to deal with things until I have to deal with them. Um, and as I said, that then just rolls into different parts of your life. So I don't like to long term plan. You know, I don't like to, you know, try to look too far into the into the future. I had that real issue a real problem as well um but as i said it's the it's, it, it, grief's a funny thing you know and i always say to it it can hit you in waves you can you can feel like you've got through and i was doing sort of like a bit of research around the different stages of grief and all that sort of stuff and it was really sort of then apparent that maybe there's still some elements i haven't quite dealt with or thought about of dealing with
0: yeah no i, I completely understand that it's you know we talk about it all the time on the podcast is how yeah it comes in waves it can hit you when you're least expecting it um and you know like the key events across the year that remind you of them and 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 all those sorts of stuff um so I completely get that um but how do you think the death of Stephen has changed your outlook on life
1: well, it completely changed my outlook because I, I say to people all the time, I was a middle child, so uh, the expectations of me achieving greatness wasn't that really high on my list of things to It didn't feel like it was high on anyone else's list of things that I had to do. So I had an older brother you know, and a younger sister, and I was just in the middle. And I, I say to people, I was just the hum of life, you know, that just that basic hum that doesn't, you know, really fluctuate too much. And I was quite happy in that sort of position. And losing Stephen and Stephen being such a strong role model in my life and such a strong beacon of who I wanted to be, what what I wanted to be like, um, that I then just wanted my sister, who's five years younger than me, to have that same sort of experience and have that same sort of outlook of me that I had of Stephen. So, you know, I, I really tried hard to... Be a pioneer. Try to be to be a leader, to be a forefront person, and just set the way so that my sister can say, "Oh, well, you, you know, you didn't really live a good example, or you didn't do, you didn't do that." I, you know, I went to university. I got tried to get the best qualification I could there. I you know, went out to work, tried to achieve really good there. So just always trying to set the bar as high as I could for my sister to have that accolade, of trying to trying to reach it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast and I can completely relate to everything you just said that, um, you know, the bereaved tend to have that sort of drive inside of them, don't they? That that once you want to push forward and try and achieve your goals, like you just said, um, and there's like an inner burning fire inside um, that I, I always describe it like.
1: Definitely, definitely. And, and, and that drive also comes from wanting to make Stephen proud as well. Like, that's also... was a good driver for a number of years for me you know whenever I felt like I couldn't achieve something or something was really hard or difficult and I didn't want to do it that that sort of question of myself of you know if Stephen was here now what would he say to me you know what would Stephen want me to do those are real sort of strong driving forces especially in my early years to to keep me going and keep pushing me forward.
0: I mean Stephen's death was such a High-profile case, you know, in the press and the news in the UK globally, um, and in a way, I remember myself with my dad's murder. How you know, across East Anglia, I would get home and I'd see, I'd see it on the news, and I'd see it in the local newspaper and things like that. And I'm just wondering how you found coping with that, um, such a high-profile case, and navigating with your grief through that.
1: I suppose that that was probably the hardest part of it all because. You know, my mum my and dad were quite visible, quite present. You know, so people knew who they were, whereas I wasn't. And you know, the, the most sort of like shocking thing that happened to me regarding it all is I—I was a second-year uh, degree student, and we went to uh, Prague on a field trip uh, for a couple of days. And you uh, know, we, we got there the night before. Woke up in the morning and we went to uh, the square, the major square in Prague. It was, I think it's called Times Square. I don't, know, I don't know what it's called. But anyway, we went to the main square in Prague and there's a newspaper stand. And on the newspaper stand, there were some English papers. And then all of a sudden I saw a picture of my mum and my dad and it said, Steve Lawrence, something. I was just like, how, how is that even possible? Like, I've left the UK. I've, I've come to a foreign country and still, like, the very first thing on the, on the very first day of my trip is something to do assist even, which I didn't know was going to happen. So that just really put a whole sort of jaded effect on my, my trip to Prague. And it just feels like sometimes that, you know, you, I can't get away from it. And not that I want to get away from it, but there is there is no facet of my life where it doesn't infiltrate and have an effect on. You know, the same thing happened... After the trial, uh, when we convicted the two guys as well, went away for a couple of weeks, you know, just to you know get some headspace. And the very last day of our holiday before we came back, it then got reported. I think that they they were going to go and appeal the case. I was just like, does it does it never does it never stop? When when will we come to the point where I can just get on with my life, turn the page, end the chapter, and just get on with my life? Uh, just like any other normal person would, and and to be able to say that was something bad that happened to me in the past, but I'm now looking forward to the future.
0: Yeah, that's a a really interesting point, isn't it? How you try not to let that define you and who you are. But I guess in a way, you kind of have in a sense of positive ways and sort of leading into my next question of, you know, you now carry out a lot of um, motivational public speaking, sharing your brother's case and how your family sort of fought to change the law and overcome the prejudice about race and diversity in society. Are you happy to share more about the work that you're doing at the moment?
1: Yeah, sure. So I definitely would say we're, and we're, we're on a road. And I, I, the analogy that I like to give people is that this is, because I know what's happened with Stephen and the time it took us to get justice, I know that this new fight to try and find an absolute thing of a marathon it's not a sprint you know it's not going to be accomplished in a couple of days or weeks or even months or even years really this is going to be a real long slog trying to change people's opinions and mindsets about things that have been deep rooted in their subconsciousness for generations so you know we're i've speaking to one of the young activists from black life black life matters and she's a 20 year old young girl who's in her second year of an art degree living at home with our mum and dad. And I, I just had to be honest with her and just say to her, like, you, do you realise what you're getting into? Like, do you realise that this could be 10 years of your life that could be consumed with this really worthwhile cause, but that's 10 years of your life. You might not finish university. Your mum and dad might have to move, like, if certain people get find out where you live. You know, there's good press and there's bad press. How are you deal with those sort of things? And I really just wanted to have an insight of what life is like on this journey of campaigning and trying to change such a massive juggernaut thing of the society, the way that we've been behaving, the way that we've acted, the way that we've done things for generations of years to somehow now turn this around into a fact where people can understand that, you know what, it doesn't matter what someone looks like, it's the character of the person and the convictions of their their words and their deeds that really mean something in life. That's what's important. So to try and change that all around is going to take years. And I just saw it as my little way of doing something to help that cause before George Floyd. Had, now, I've been out there doing this for the last three or four years now, trying to share my story, trying to share with young people the effects. And this is not just black kids or white kids. This is everyone, every, all different types of kids from all different types of backgrounds just to show them and explain to them the effects of one action. One action you can do can have an effect on that person's life, their, their immediate family, and generations to come that haven't even been born or thought about yet can have an effect on just your one action. And really try to get them to think and understand about how powerful they can be but then also how simple that line of right and wrong and which way that we go is so easy for us to go one way or the other without taking those sometimes those little times to have a think and that moment of clarity of where we're going what we're doing and how that's going to affect someone.
0: Yeah that is such a powerful message to young people isn't it and the fact of like you just said that one decision could change your life forever and yeah, I mean, that, that's, yeah, it's very powerful and amazing work that you guys are doing. Are you able to share more about the Charitable Trust, so the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust um, and and how you work with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds? Yeah,
1: how does that work? So the, the Trust was set up to enable students, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds, to have a pathway into architecture uh, because... That was what Stephen wanted to do and as we did a bit more research and did a bit more digging we realised that it was such a a massive thing and such a big task for young people to overcome especially if you didn't have anyone in your family who may have gone to university or even had that sort of level of knowledge about the duration that it takes to become an architect it's a bit like a doctor so seven years you do part one part two part three and in between the little gaps of the, uh, the different parts you do you're supposed to do work experience as well so you could accrue debt up to ninety thousand pounds quite easily trying to do this course so we just saw it away if we could financially help the students first of all, as our first thinking and within the first sort of five years we had a program of giving bursaries out to students in england south africa and jamaica um, and then we thought as it sort of rolled on we then sort of like after the first first cohort cohort students went through we then started realising that it wasn't just the money that they needed, but they also then needed support and help in other ways. So we just developed an alumni uh, body where we then got students who have been through the programme before and had those lived experiences to just mentor the new students that came on. And now, like after what's been nearly 15, I think like 17 years now we've been doing this, and since then like we've had well over 200 students graduate as architects. You know, we've got about ten students who start their own practices. You know, I know three or four students who now have definitely gone out there and built their own buildings and have buildings, you know, around the world that they've built. Yeah. And and it's all these little small accolades that I always say to people. Yes, you know, we've lost it even, but since then we've been able to really transform and change other people's lives. Wow, that sounds incredible,
0: and when you're at secondary school and you're about to leave, you know, it can be an extremely difficult time. And so to actually sort of, you know, have some form of steer and support from the charity um, is amazing. So I'm just going to move into some questions from the children at bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. They would like to know, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're
1: feeling sad? See, the range of emotions and I always say to people like anger for me and sadness for me are, are, are emotions that are really are useful emotions to have, but can be quite detrimental. And I I my wife always says to me like she doesn't ever think I'm truly happy. Uh, and I don't ever look truly happy. But I I, I I don't walk around with a big cheesy grin on my face all the time, but I do try to Uh, let my guard down and try to be as juvenile and as silly as possible with my immediate family. So that makes me happy. Um, but it's hard, you know, I, 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 I try to put myself in a positive state of mind every day and I try not to let things affect me. So I do feel sad, um, which is easier said than done. I always say to people, um, but yeah, what else can I do? I you know I, I watch, I try to watch funny things, you know. I, I try to do things like that and, and try, just try to be and keep things as light as possible when I am feeling a bit da- down. Um, and having chilled up, my son, he, he's he's a great one to to pull me out of a, suit, out of a sad mood because, you know, he, he, I just look at him and he's got that innocence of mind where he just doesn't see things the way i see things and have the same stresses i have he just life is simple you know he he does see school work he watches youtube and he plays his plays his playstation likes football like like that's how simple he condenses his life down to so sometimes it's just about doing that you know stop stop making life so complicated try and think of the simpler things in life and, and you know i like to watch things that make me laugh yeah, I'm completely with you on the the children and
0: the they're a great leveler, aren't they? For sort of bringing you out of any mood, hundred percent. Because they don't care, they
1: don't care. Like oh, I've got this thing going on in my mind. He like he doesn't care. He just wants to meet, wants me there to play football with him, or you know, there to do something. Like so, so, it's a good it's a good distraction and a good way to pull yourself out of a, a mindset.
0: Okay, my next question is: What piece of music reminds you
1: of Stephen? Oh wow. Uh... So we we so this, this is a good question because you know it's kind of hard to tell people that you know in not in my day I sound like a real old fogy, you know, when I say this but in my day you know we didn't have the, the Spotify wasn't a thing you know YouTube wasn't a thing uh to, to to listen to music there was only sort of a couple of ways so you could even listen to it off the radio listen to it on a cassette player or listen to it on a on a on a piece of vinyl and. we we was lucky enough to have uh, an all-in-one turntable that I think had a radio, a record player, and a cassette player all attached to the same sort of device. So um, Stephen would – this was just sort of the ball of hip-hop. So Stephen would go out and buy the little uh, seven-inch records. Uh, So there's two. The first one that and Pepper Push It was one of the first ones. And – I can't remember the second name. It's it's oh, I can hear the song but I can't remember the lady's name I'll have to find it um, there's nothing going on but the rent is the the, the 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 chorus nothing going on but the rent oh uh, yeah so I'll have to find out one but no still salt sort of pepper push it is definitely uh, a classic icon song that I can always remember. He him play and when he wasn't there I'd, I'd pull it out and give it a quick spin myself. Um so, yeah, that, that'd be that one. Salt and pepper, push it.
0: OK, what do you do to remember Stephen on important days, like his birthday?
1: Uh, so his birthday. So the, I, I will go to the spot two times a year. Uh, once on his birthday and once on the anniversary of his death. They're, they're the only two days I'll go to the spot. Um, and, yeah, so it's 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 really... And again, with the whole blocking things out, like, so um, my next... So where, I, where I lived in Woolwich, we, we we lived in a council house and my my two next door neighbours either side were called Stephen. So we had Stephen Lamb on one side, we had Stephen Lawrence in the middle and then we had Stephen Randall on the other side. Now, Stephen Randall was my best friend. and But after Stephen, to see him was so much a reminder of steve and my brother that i didn't see him like i didn't see steve and randall for almost 14 years after Stephen passed away just because it was too much for me to see because as soon as i saw him it'd be like steve randall and his older sister sally and my brother the same age and us two us four would go do everything before our mums had another child Georgina and Angela, who both were the same sort of age again. So all three of us on family holidays, day trips, school trips, like we would do so much together. So to see them as a family was too much. So I just, I didn't see them. I just didn't see them. I didn't speak to them. And it's only the last, So I saw him my 30th birthday, he came and had a surprise 30th birthday. So I saw him then and it's only in the last I'd say five years recently that we've started to see each other, speak to each other on a more regular basis and really start to rekindle that friendship again. Um, cause it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to, um, relive those memories and know that it's, um, yeah, that's all they are, those memories. It's pretty
0: painful, isn't it? I, I, I completely understand what you're saying in terms of that sort of pre and after, you know, and think certain things that you would have done all the time. And then it's just, OK, I find that too difficult. But eventually you get there. And I guess that's a great message for, for
1: anyone out there listening. 100%. So I definitely would say it's so another key one for me was Christmas. I absolutely, after Stephen, absolutely hate Christmas. Like for, yeah, it probably wasn't until I met my wife. And then what I used to, because it was so hard, like my mum my would just shut down at Christmas time. Like she would find it really difficult and would want to go away on holiday or leave the country or something. And because I was at university, I couldn't always go with her. So I, I think there was a couple of years where I would go and my future wife now, I would go to her family's and it was so nice to go there because the magic of christmas they still had and it was just so nice to go there but then so horrible then the following year maybe to go back home and to have a really subdued christmas so that's taken me a really long time and again you know i i, I absolutely hated it i really did and i i, I still You know, I say to my wife now, like Christmas is one day, you know, I'll do my Christmas shopping Christmas Eve and, you know, those sort of things. It's not until now that I've had my own son that I will try to make sure that I do things rather than just do it on one. Like I literally would go out Christmas Eve and if it wasn't there, then I'd be like, sorry, like you didn't get the present Mm -hmm. you wanted because it wasn't there, you know, and and it's really hard to, to try and, say that to my son because like I said you know he he deserves the magic of Christmas um yeah. so yeah I had to yeah. I had to change my ways a bit and start to be able to do a bit of planning and foresight and do you know what I mean just to make sure that he had the same magicalness of Christmas that I had growing up I completely
0: get what you're saying there in terms of um you know my wife's always really good at sort of recognizing you know, say if Christmas is coming up, or even like my the anniversary of my dad's death, or things like that. And yeah, your mood sort of changes, and you just view it differently. And um, yeah, and I just completely get everything you're just saying. Um, the next question is: What three things are you most thankful for at the moment?
1: Um, my three things. I'm, so I, I tell people that I'm, I'm thankful every single day. I wake up and I draw another breath, like. That for me is, it sounds so simple, but until you know the fragility of life and how simply one day you're here and the next you're not, every day then becomes an amazing gift for you to try and go ahead and achieve like the best you can in that day. Um, definitely sort of my family, you know, my wife, my son, Um, and my mum, my my sister, so my immediate family. But then I've got such a massive, extensive family as well. So to try and see them as much as possible and spend time with them as much as possible is is a great joy. And the the, the most thing I'm most grateful for currently, I suppose, is is this new movement of, you know, where we're looking for black equality at the moment, to see so many young people get it and understand it and, and and almost it almost feels like an embarrassment to, to, to us adults, especially like I've had so many students I've taught uh, get in contact with me and say, oh, we're on a march. And I just think to myself, well, oh, you're 20-something. Like, why are you having to do this with your life? Like, it makes me glad that you're, you're, you're being active and you're taking a role in this all. But as in the position now of an adult, I just now feel quite embarrassed that we're now having to pass this on to another generation. Um, But I'm happy to see the range of kids from, you know, socially deprived backgrounds, from well-to-do backgrounds, from black kids, from white kids, you know, young, old. There's so many people getting involved in the movement and and gaining an understanding of why this time should be such a time for change. That just gives me so much hope and fire in my own stomach, really, to carry on uh, the good fight, really. Yeah, no, it's, it feels
0: like that there is a new wave of young people who are, you know, like you say, they get it and they're out there and they're campaigning and they're doing what they need to do. And I think it's, it's really powerful to see. Um, Okay. My, my last question and one that I always like to end on, um, if you had one final conversation with Stephen, what do you think you might like to say to him?
1: Do you know what? This is this is a hard one for me because I, I say to people, I, I get asked questions like this in and around this quite a lot. And I, I say to people, the hardest thing here is to allow yourself to go down this road of, you know, what you would say, how you would say it. Um, and I just think that's such a dangerous thing because the realms of possibility Like there's like two sides of me here where the, the, the romantic fluffy side of me goes, Oh yeah, I'll tell you that. But then the, the practicality side of me goes, don't allow yourself to have those thoughts and feelings because that's going to take you down a rabbit hole that you may not be able to pull yourself back out of. And just, you know, I know, I know for a fact that we all will in the, the comfort of our own thoughts and in the comfort of our own space, have those conversations of what if, how, you know, could I have all those scenarios where, you know, and it talks about in grief about the bargaining that you try to do to try and switch the situation around to make it play out in your favor in some way. And I know myself, my own mental state, that I shouldn't allow myself to do that because once that snowball starts to roll... I don't know if I can stop it or not. And again, it goes back to the reason why I didn't go and see certain people, why I cut certain people off and I, I insulated myself because I know that Stuart is such a fragile, um, it's almost like an egg. You know, you know if you get a chicken egg, and you put it in your hand, you can just try to squeeze that chicken egg as hard as you can, it won't break. But if you hold it at a certain angle, and, and try to squeeze again and it definitely will break and I know that about myself. I know that as long as I keep myself centred and I know if I keep myself, you know, as balanced as possible, then the egg will never break. But as soon as I start to go off kilter, as soon as I start to think that I have the ability to do something like that, but to, to really allow myself to have that conversation and it goes backwards and forward, then, yeah, would I then be able to afterwards pull myself back from that, that that cliff edge and say, right, now I've got to stop? Because I think that's also quite a hard thing to, to, to allow yourself to do. And, and that, again, was the reason why, uh, you know, it's, it's taken me probably such a long time. You know, because Stephen passed away when I was 16. You know, the first time I went out in public and spoke about Stephen probably was at uh so five years after Stephen, i would have been 21 so yeah about 21 probably when when we had the first big anniversary service at st martin's in the field that was probably the first time in public i spoke about Stephen and a memory that i had of Stephen. and since then every day has been a lot easier to talk about it but again i know my own fragility and my own state of mind that I have to be careful to keep myself on that balance of reality versus um, the dream world and the 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 non reality of it all. So, yeah, I'm 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 going to have to take the Fifth Amendment on that one, Mark, and swear. And I know that makes lots of people out there going, "I'm going, I'm going," but I can't. I just I'm, I'm being honest with myself and I'm going to try and be as honest as I can with you guys and just say, look, I can't. Some of the people are allowed to can do that with themselves and can take themselves down the road and then pull themselves back quite easily. I still am not in that place where I can do that. Um, no, I completely agree. Um, and
0: I always say that everyone deals with their grief in their own way and in their own time, and that's okay. you know. And I think a lot of people struggle to to, um, to realise that, that, you know, the way that you find your own coping mechanisms through your grief and through your life is OK for you, you know. And so, yeah, Stuart, I just want to say a massive thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to come on the podcast and share your story. Um, and I know that all my listeners will get something out of this, and I just want to say a big thank you.
1: No worries, and, and that's what it is, you know, for me... If I can just help one person, I always say to people whenever I do things, it, there may be only one that takes something from what we've just done. And for me, that's a great sense of achievement because in changing that one person or giving that one person an insight to something, I'm hopeful that that person can then go on and give another one person that insight or something. And that's how we reinforce change and real change, meaningful change. It's just one person at a time. That's all we need to, to keep in our mind. We're not going to be able to change the thousands of people's mindsets all at once. You know, we we don't have that power, or some of us don't have that power. Um, but you know, if we can just change one, great. And I would just also like to say, if anyone wants to reach out to me and ask me any questions, or you know, want to you know throw something. Or, please contact me. I, I try to do my social media things. I try to answer everyone as much as possible. I've had a young man who's been on Instagram been asked me loads of questions about, you know, the protests out in America, the things that's been happening over here from a from assembly and I, and I love it because that's how we in, enforce and enable this change that we're looking for by keeping this dialogue going, by keeping the conversation going and being honest and frank as possible where we can. Absolutely. And just for the listeners i'm going to put the uh, all the relevant
0: information in the show notes so you know like Stuart said you can reach out to him and ask him any questions that you've got but yeah thanks again Stuart, and all the best to you
1: if we can just help one person along his way uh, way or his way then that's great we're doing good things